0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Trainer Talk, a place where negotiation trainers talk shop. My name is Max Bevilacqua, founder and principal at Max Negotiating, a spinoff of the Harvard Negotiation Project.
1: Hi, Max. I'm Gwen Krauss, and I've been training negotiation and leadership workshops for 25 years around the world in multiple industries and worked with several training firms, including Vantage Partners action design, as well as my own training and coaching company, Polaris Professional Development.
0: We're on our fourth episode now, and it's it's hard to believe based on where we started that um, we are where we are, but it's I, I think we're embarking on the journey of creating community in the way that we're hoping, and we're really grateful for all the feedback and additional listeners and followers we've gotten. Gwen, how, how is episode number four treating you?
1: Uh, This is a great episode. And I have to say, I knew that it was going to be fun and instructional to produce this podcast, but it's been beyond my wildest dreams of uh, what a blast it is to talk to so many interesting people and to work with you, Max. So without further ado, let's launch into number four.
0: Today, Peter Hidden is gonna talk to us about conflict. First, as um, a banker, in a bankruptcy conversation with a company and transitioning from an antagonistic to a joint problem solving perspective, as well as a story about a a mishap with a colleague and trying to resolve that. And then we're gonna zoom out and and talk about international conflict resolution and,
2: and Peter's international perspective. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much, Gwen and Max. Great to be here.
1: So Peter, could you just tell us a little bit about how you made the jump from banking and finance into traveling around the world and teaching negotiation?
2: Absolutely, happy to. You know, it's it's a great example to me of how sometimes we fall into a place where maybe we were meant to be. I started my career yeah, in, in finance and banking and When I got exposed to this stuff, it was when I was working as a corporate banker for Royal Bank of Canada in Toronto. And my timing was excellent. I had worked in finance a bit, went back to and did an MBA and then joined as a corporate banker in the depths of a nasty recession. And so uh, instead of helping clients build their businesses and grow their businesses, I was mostly coming in saying, hi, nice to meet you. Give us our money back right now. Uh, By the way, restructure your businesses, fire people, close divisions and all kinds of, oh, and we're going to charge you more interest, higher interest rates and tighten all of your conditions and make your life miserable. How else can I help you today? And obviously that wasn't what I meant or what the bank meant, but it is some of what we did. It was certainly some of the impact we had and no surprise, it was terrible. (laughs) Uh, It was terrible at a human level and it was terrible at a business level. And my colleagues and I were really struggling with how to handle this, how we could do better. And I remember having read the book, Getting to Yes, that came out of the the Harvard Negotiation Project. I read that as one of the textbooks assigned in my MBA program, and I thought it was fantastic. And like a lot of people, we read some fantastic things and we forget about them. And so I kind of forgot about it. And then one Monday morning, a colleague walked in with this book in her hand and said, guys, 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 you know, we're, I read this amazing book on the weekend and we're all stressed out and we don't know what to do. I read this book, it's called Getting to Yes. And I had one of those, you know, bonk yourself on the head moments, oh yeah. And as you know, the book has some really intellectually simple shifts, but in practice, very, very significant shifts in terms of our frame of reference how we get ready for things, how we think about the problem, how we think about the other party. And so we we applied it. And we turned situations around from all-out war, where we were the ones with the big hammer and the big stick, uh, and things were going nowhere fast, to a joint problem-solving endeavor, with still lots of tough negotiations, but uh, a forward-looking collaborative spirit and we saved companies, we saved livelihoods we we absolutely and completely turned things around. and I still remember today where I was sitting, sometimes when I received some of those thank you letters from clients, uh, while they were still in the midst of the thick of it. and I you know that had a huge impact on me as a person, as a professional. I thought, "Wow, you know, this banking stuff is okay, <laughs> but wow, that was amazing so. I really just couldn't get it out of my head. And I I went to the UK with RBC as well and was working there and it was fantastic being there, but I just really couldn't, uh, this just stayed with me. And so I thought, I wonder if I could do that for a living. And in the end, I found a way to do it. And that's how I ended up here.
0: That's amazing Um, question because we, here, as you know preach the gospel of the seven elements
2: mm-hmm.
0: in terms of exactly what you do to move from this antagonistic big bad corporate and poor little guy mm-hmm. dynamic to joint collaboration i'd be curious um, to hear your take on your approach to relationship and communication mm-hmm. and what changed for you and what you did um and also I'm curious. I'm curious if if you have a story in particular uh, regarding a colleague that that might
2: apply here. Sure. And actually, you know, th- there is one I have in mind about a colleague. I also remembering one about a client, and maybe also one of the first clients that we did this with to to change the game where it worked, and then how I totally screwed it up with a colleague, um, because that's part of life, right? We're we're imperfect. So. To answer the, the first part of your question, I think, first of all, it was just remembering that we were dealing with people. The, you know, Yes, they were founders and owners of companies or CFOs or whatever, but especially in the companies where it was uh, owned and managed and run by people who had founded it and put their life and blood and soul into it, we were potentially going to take everything from them, including their their house, Uh, terrible, you know? So it's bad enough to to put people who are employees in a company through an incredibly stressful time. Uh, It's quite another thing to potentially destroy what someone spent 20 or 30 years building, you know? So um, it was remembering, that's right, these are people and they're just trying to do the best they can with what they got, just like we are. And at the same time we make mistakes and we have good days and bad days and do smart things and dumb things. And so that shift helped us a lot. And we got together with other colleagues and said, okay, if we were this person, right, that classic notion of putting ourselves in their shoes and saying, if I founded this company 30 years ago, recognizing, I can't exactly imagine what that's like, but if I had, and I put everything into it and now I was maybe going to lose it all. Uh, how would I feel? What would I think? What would I be doing? And that had a massive effect on how we got ready for it, how we thought about them. And of course, this notion of empathy, of starting to feel some empathy for that person and also dispelling some of the worst case assumptions that we'd been making about their motives. So that was number one, right? We started to think, well, maybe, you know, what we think is really unreasonable and outrageous and maybe even, um, manipulative, et cetera, isn't any of that. It's just them trying to survive and them being really scared and maybe also really angry. And we're contributors to that system. So that was a big shift. And then coming to them at the table, I, I would also say then in terms of communicating and, and you know resetting the nature of our interaction, just saying, hey, know we've been looking at this and thinking about this and obviously we're we're doing this we're just knocking heads and we're in a big huge battle They said, yeah and you have the big stick you could put us into bankruptcy we said you're right you're right we can and we don't want to do it we don't want to do it at any level Um, it's if if we feel like there's nothing else we can do we may but we would really rather not we want your company to survive and unfortunately path we're on now which we by the way are contributors to we don't think it's you know we think it's it's heading the wrong way and so we'd like to stop fighting against you and treating each other like enemies and start working with you on this shared problem which is how could we have your company survive while also protecting the assets of the bank recognizing that some of our interests are in conflict but many are not so that was a huge shift and fundamentally changed the game
1: I can see why having applied this and used this in such a difficult situation uh, you took such an interest in the model and and decided to change your your entire professional trajectory mm-hmm. um, you have a story I think about working with a with a colleague where mm-hmm. you were trying to apply this and it maybe it didn't go so well the first time
2: yeah <laughs> you know what I love about it is it's just reminds us I think sometimes when we work in the field like we think oh we're supposed to be like amazing at this all the time perfect which is completely ridiculous (laughs) I think as a (laughs) as an expectation and and actually I think it actually leads to a lot of poor outcomes because sometimes we feel trapped by our own profession you know and what I found over time by the way I realized this morning speaking with my wife that this month is 25 years since I've been working in the field Uh, So it's a good thing I started when I was 15 because (laughs) so anyway uh, which is fantastic it's a real celebration and anyway this is an example where a colleague and I we knew each other we worked together in in Cambridge and stuff for a while and we both went different places and we're in different parts of the world but we're still working together in some capacity and we had had some problems and I thought you know and we were uh, different time zones and traveling a lot and difficult to connect and I thought you know I don't really want to write him an email about this and it's hard for us to organize a call and Skype was was getting better at that time and all that but but you know maybe I'll try to emulate a little bit of a conversation I'll record some audio a couple of audio just sharing my thoughts that way and send him the audio saying hey I'm hoping that this actually communicates a little more of my the meaning that I'm trying to convey instead of just a written form where we can misinterpret a lot more easily so good intention you know the whole intent impact gap so good intent. <laughs> impact not so much uh, as it happens and I, I listened to my own recordings after I, I actually can't remember if I listened to them before I sent them which would have been a good idea uh, because I wasn't in a great headspace unsurprisingly, when I recorded these things. And so the tone and the manner, I actually wasn't so much angry as, I don't know how to characterize it, but it was just one of these, it was a way of being and a way of speaking that was, I think, hard to hear. And so, you know, I sent this to him and I sent him an email, hey, I just thought instead of writing this in an email, I'd say some of this, I'd attach a, you know, minutes of me talking or a few minutes of me talking and then let's let's see if we can arrange a live call again or better yet a, a video call where we can see each other and and talk it through anyway I heard nothing for a while and I follow up hey you know did you get that, that did you have a chance to hear it uh, how did it land all this and you know he did eventually re-engage with me and he just said yeah I, I did receive it he didn't say much about it okay uh, that doesn't sound good so then we arranged a call and in that in that call a Skype call and he told me yeah literally hearing you talk made it way worse because of the way you were talking wow and so and so I apologized and and you know we talked it through and we're good but it it made the problem worse So, and to me, it was a fantastic illustration of this example of like, I went into it with the intention of maybe having a better communication, having him understand and uh, whatever, hearing me as a person, but there was something about how it landed, you know, the way I was speaking, et cetera, that really, and yeah, when I played it back, I'm like, oh, I can totally see that from his perspective. Um, So... Anyway, it was great. I made this big mess. It went kind of boom, you know, and he said it was really actually difficult for him to listen to this stuff. He did listen to it, but it really, it it was, I think, hurtful, in fact. So that, that sits with me as a great example of how, you know, and first of all, intention doesn't line up to impact and, and the impact matters more. The intent matters too. Sure. I wasn't trying to make the problem worse. I wasn't trying to hurt him, but I did. And that's what mattered most.
1: Peter, I'm curious. You said that the tone of voice uh, was was a problem. And you don't have to get deep into the content, but was it you basically advocating your point of view?
2: So certainly I was doing that. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine. It's a one-way vehicle right off the bat. So that's the other problem, right? That it's just me talking. There's no response and then adjusting. The way I would characterize my tone, it was kind of like, trying to think if I can mimic it. It was kind of like, you know, I just don't really like this and this is a problem. And I don't know, it was bad, bad. I, it was for sure me advocating. And it was just, a, it, it was a, an experience of like a closed and yeah, just a very kind of negative framing, a very mm. negative feeling is what I can say.
0: And without getting into our personal theologies, I think there's a cruelty in the design of our brains that Doug and Sheila, who are wonderful, amazing colleagues of ours, bring up and thanks for the feedback, is mm-hmm. that there's a part of our brain, the STS, um, that detects tone mm-hmm. and conveniently shuts off when we're speaking, such mm-hmm. that we become effectively tone blind. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always humbled by that. Um, as someone who fancies themselves, again, bound by the profession as self-aware, uh, mm-hmm. but always feels the need to confess that I'm not, to know that this is just a feature of our brains, um, and I mean, that intent impact as well. I mean, isn't that isn't that the majority of, of the work we try and do? Mm-hmm.
1: So Peter, um, I'm curious, you have worked a- around the world uh, in many, many different cultures. You speak several languages. You're often the go-to guy for um, a challenging engagement in another culture. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say a few words about how you approach Training, negotiation, difficult conversations, material in culture in vastly different cultures.
2: It's such a great question, and yeah, I I think you know we chatted about this a little bit the other day, and I think the the two words that came to mind right away were one humility and uh, two curiosity. And what I mean by that I should say also I had the good fortune of being able to do a lot of personal travel as well a lot of backpacking etc and and work through a lot of different countries in different contexts and I found that those traits really helped me a lot and and what I mean by humility is really remembering that uh, I don't know much about the context that i'm in i would always seek to learn something about it i'd read stuff about you know the culture and some of the history et cetera, out of my own interest so that curiosity factor but also say okay that's the tip of the iceberg and so and and i'm a guest in their country i am a guest and i came uninvited in some cases now you know in the in the business context we're invited but still the specific people that I'm working with in the room didn't necessarily invite me, their leaders invited me or their their, uh, learning representatives, et cetera. So I remember that and I remind myself of that. And then I combine that with curiosity to say, gee, how do things work here? And how do we do this, especially around protocols, et cetera. You know, uh, even things of, I think about the work we do What's an appropriate time of day to start a workshop. Is this a get up early and go culture is this a you know, later culture and by the way what's the you know, even culture around arriving. Uh, should we expect that arriving within 10 to 15 minutes of the official start time is arriving on time and therefore that's okay that's totally fine just it's good to know that. Um, all of these things right. Uh, and uh, remember that they are being kind enough to let me deliver a workshop in a language that is not their mother tongue, and that happens to be mine. Unless I'm working in French or Spanish, um, the my fourth language is is one spoken in the north of Holland by a small number of people. I don't think it would help a lot to run a workshop in that language. And I'm still working on English, by the way. So, um, so those things help a lot. So I would ask people things, and I try to remember there are different ways that we operate in different parts of the world. And that's helped me a, a whole lot. And I say something to that effect when I start leading a client session saying, hey, you know, thank you for having me here. And look, I'm a guest in your country. And I know a little bit about how things work here, but not that much. And I'm here to offer some thoughts that have been helpful to me and other people I've worked with. And I wanna recognize that some of it might resonate really well for you. And some might not, um, that some of this stuff by default has a cultural dimension to it. And so as we work together, if things don't resonate for you, please uh, let's talk about it and let's talk about how it might work differently, Mm -hmm. uh, for you. Um, and so that's really helped me a lot. I remember backpacking too, like just asking people, how should I do this here? And I want to be respectful about it. I don't know how to do that properly here. And, and then I guess the last thing I'd say is acknowledging we're going to just make mistakes and we're going to bump into each other and, and let them know that what my intention is um, to be respectful, to, to learn from them while we let's learn together and also acknowledge almost for sure, I'll do some things that aren't great. So I apologize in advance. Um, and that really helped. I found where there's a will, there was a way. And then, then we would work together in this lovely dance that, uh, was always very rich.
1: Are there any examples you have, you know, certain elements? We, we, we think or we, we have a theory that the, the seven elements work in any negotiation anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. but the difference may be how those are applied.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, do you have any examples of, of where, you know, a certain element they gave you pushback and, and you had to say, well, how does that work here?
2: Yeah, I think probably like you guys would relate to the the whole, for sure, the relationship communication components, right? So how direct uh, can communication be uh, versus how indirect does it need to be? Or, And even applying that uh, or, or, or relationship dynamics, how do I address people who are senior in rank or status to me? And do I even, should I be looking them in the eye or not? Maybe occasionally look briefly, but then, then look away or down, uh, not too much direct eye contact because that can be seen as disrespectful. Or you know, do, do I ask a question directly of that person or should I be asking someone else who may know what their actual concern is? Um, is it okay to disagree in a group in front of others or does that really need to be done one-on-one and those are those are at least some of the things that really come to mind and even the question of when someone says to me that would be very difficult (laughs) right in some cultures that's a version of that's never going to happen i'm telling you right now (laughs) uh whereas we go oh that'd be very difficult okay say a bit more about why it would be difficult and how can i help you and i know that would be very difficult (laughs) (laughs) listen buddy what i'm telling you is forget it don't even think about it (laughs) so i think those are ones where if we think about like a north american and recognizing okay so north american which actually technically includes canada u.s and mexico there's already and think about variation across those cultures even within the us right this isn't there a book called like the nine nations of the united states something like that so there's so much variation within a culture no culture is monolithic Um, but i think relationship communication dynamics and process dynamics around how many voices do we want to hear at the table uh, is it really just the voice of the most senior person, or is it a broader array? I, I, I find those things show up as well. And Peter, I'm curious about
0: what, if any, use the designations of high context and low context culture play for you as you're approaching an engagement? I,
2: I've, I found them quite helpful, actually, uh, because... Yeah, and of course, if we're defining that high context where I say a word and it has a lot of embedded meaning and low context where I, I seek to be as explicit and transparent about my intended meaning as, as possible, um, I find it's especially helpful in high context cultures <laughs> because if I think, you know, examples, having lived in France and, and worked there in and, and a number of different instances and this great example of, people being in a meeting and someone will say oh c'est bien ça yi which is okay it's good we, we've got there we're good you know and everyone's said oui d'accord and everyone gets up and leaves you know it's okay <laughs> and people who come from a lower contact culture there would have been things said before that which people understood this whole concept of a sous-entendu which there isn't really a direct translation for in English but a a a message behind a message, a message within a message, a message below a message, um, that people that share that high context culture would have been following, and those of us who don't come from that—you know, my ethnic background is is Dutch, and uh, the Dutch is a somewhat lower context culture, and then I was born and raised in Canada, and Canada is one of the lower contexts, in part kind of had to be like the US because we had so many different cultures mixed in. We found out the only way we could eventually understand each other was to drop those expectations and be more transparent and explicit. So it would be great. We'd sit there in these meetings and someone would say, yes, I, you know, and everyone nods and I'm left saying, uh, we're done and we are in agreement (laughs) about what, (laughs) you know? So I find that that can help. Mm -hmm.
0: And I have a question for for both you, Peter, and you, Gwen, Mm -hmm. which is gonna be tough and polarizing, and I'm I'm gonna say that now.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm wondering if from a trainer perspective, if you had to prescribe either a low context, direct, or high context, more socially aware, embedded meanings style, Mm-hmm. Which would you recommend leaning towards and why?
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great one. Do you want me to go first since I'm the guest or Gwen, do you want to <laughs> please?
1: please. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um it'll give me a chance to think.
2: <laughs> okay. I love the question. <laughs> and yeah, it is a tough one. I don't know. It could be polarizing. I guess, I guess it could be. I so just looking at my own lived experience, I would tend toward the lower context uh, for, uh, for practical reasons, really, that uh, I would tend toward it, especially in a, in a situation where there are mixtures of people who would arrive with different contexts where therefore the, uh, I mean, misunderstanding is just a normal feature of everyday life anyway, and if two people together for 50 years in a relationship can still misunderstand each other, then me meeting someone for the first time with a different uh, first language and a different cultural orientation and priorities, and we're going to misunderstand for sure. But if I layer on top of that context And if we both come from high context environments and mine is different than yours, wow, then the opportunity for misunderstanding goes way up. Uh, Although even just high context mixed with low context. So I think the the upside there is while it can take more time and sometimes be almost annoying to people is that, yes, I understood, thank you, while you now explain what you meant. (laughs) Are you insulting my intelligence? So so that that's a potential consequence. I think the upside outweighs the downside. The the upside is that the chances of good understanding go up. uh, I think, and what I found is that I I simply explain my reasoning and say, guys, I'm gonna ask uh, and and try to also implement myself. That we all try to be a little bit. Uh, more explicit about what we mean and maybe explain a bit more than we otherwise would and my intention is not to insult your intelligence or your language skills or any of that it's it's to increase the chance that what I'm trying to say is what comes across Mm -hmm. anyway I those are I guess those are my thoughts um I don't know when
1: yeah I I think that obviously different situations call for different approaches Mm -hmm. I do think I agree to be able to just explain. I'm saying this, here's my perspective. It's only one perspective in the room. Um, you know, and I am going to give you some some background. Mm-hmm. Or the other is when I'm in a room, I've said something and I can see that it didn't land.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I can I can see that I've used a turn of phrase that they're not familiar with or it didn't land. I will often stop and and say, you know do you, does that work in your world? Um, I once used an expression, I was, I was working in Tokyo and I used the expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Mm-hmm. And I saw these blank expressions and I said, I'm, I, I apologize. That may not be a a phrase that you use. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, no, we don't. The phrase we use is the nail that's sticking up gets hammered down. Mm-hmm. And you know, I had I had done a total swing and a miss, but <laughs> by in, inquiring about that, I got some really good data about their context. Yeah. Um, and it actually changed very much changed the way I was teaching the ladder and communication and relationship um, for that group. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, to use context a little bit differently. Our context as trainers is this is a fantastic model, and Mm -hmm. and you will love it as much as I do, and it will work for you in every situation. And, you know, our enthusiasm is fabulous, but sometimes I've had to really dial back and say, I I don't know enough about your, not just your culture, your organization, Mm -hmm. you know, your leadership team. Mm -hmm. Tell me all the reasons why this won't work which is a tough question to ask because you're mm-hmm. looking for, um, for a better word, criticism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we can get defensive.
2: Mm-hmm. It's really well said. Yeah, Max, you looked like you were gonna-
1: And Max, change. you asked us, Let I'm gonna throw it back to you. Do you have anything oh, to add here? Yeah. Uh, out-facilitated by a facilitator. Nicely <laughs> um,
2: done, Gwen. Two points for Gwen. Yeah.
0: Am I I winning facilitation?
2: (laughs) I think so. Not that it's competitive or anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just to be explicit, I'm going to answer it. And I just want to say, Peter, in your recounting, I thought it was so interesting that you seem to make a move to close the gap between intent and impact Mm. by being low context about your low contextness. Just say, I'm going to do this. And the reason I'm doing this is because x, y, and z. And Mm. that's the reason that I also tend in that direction. Gwen, there's also a story that I'm going to try and make you tell at some point where I think you were talking about um, different idioms as well in different languages and one had to do with like passing the hot potato versus the corpse. Um, And I just think that those examples and the power of idioms, especially when we think about, you know, it's not like in the U.S. that we learn other languages, but Peter speaks other languages. Um, That's a joke. Um, that oh,
1: I'm
2: sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I think it's just it's really helpful to notice something that we do very often which is talking idioms um, for me I've definitely received I think fair pushback against a low context bias mm-hmm. which I think is embedded in some of our tools like the ladder of inference in fact what we say is that it's good to go down it which is to say to recount explicitly mm-hmm. what's going on. So I think there's, I think I tend towards the direction of being low context because that's where I come from mm-hmm. and that's where I'm comfortable.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think, you know, our recent guest, Josh Weiss is so interesting who just had a book out called Real World Negotiations where he's talking about the, the, the power of storytelling, mm-hmm. which I think is so much more effective because Peter earlier in um, when we were talking You're talking about the shift of being against versus being with and approaching a problem like that. And I think storytelling is a great way to do that Mm -hmm. instead of the dynamic that I think at least I see in a lot of corporate spaces, which is information haver and information receptacle. Mm -hmm. So I I think I personally have more of a low context preference and normatively have biases in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the most skillful moves that I aspire to are these beautiful stories that are soft on relationship and have a message that's just right on. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever done it, but it sounds great.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You may have done it. I'm guessing you may have done it. Uh, Yeah, I think that's really well said, Max. And there is a beauty in stories and we live inside our stories. And so I think if the story is one that can be related to and, and uh, understood hopefully in the way intended by the people hearing it, it it can be so much more effective and so much more powerful than than a, an explicit low context explanation about something and for sure I you know you talking about that I, I use high context references you know I'm working with a French client right now and because I've spent some time living there and I speak the language, et cetera, and I've learned some of those expressions. And again, French in Canada is very different than French in France and different regions of France, different parts of Canada, even in other variations. But if I know, okay, I'm speaking to people from, from Paris and this is something I've heard a lot in Paris, I'll, I'll use a short form sometimes and they'll just nod knowingly and it's very efficient. Or in the UK, I lived in the UK for a while, right? And I learned how we were, quote, divided by a common language, right? (laughs) And so some of those expressions, I I think your point's a great one, that it can be very uh, efficient and effective and also a way of establishing a bit of um, a connection, saying, Mm -hmm. hey, I've invested in learning a little bit about your context, and here's a way of sharing it in a very natural way.
1: And Max, I think that that your story that you were asking about in terms of, of idioms, uh, when that happened to me in in Tokyo with the squeaky wheel gets the grease, mm. I'm I'm just very interested in language and and these weird little sayings that we all carry around with us, and I when we teach uh, blame contribution, we often talk about you pass the hot potato mm. of blame around a table, mm. and um, I. Once again, I was someplace, and they—I was in Europe, and they looked at me and and like passed the hot potato. And I said, "Yeah, you know, passing the blame. Do do you have that expression in in your language?" And in one place, they said, "Yeah, we call it passing the monkey." Mm-hmm. And I think it was Spain where they said, "Oh yeah, we call it passing the corpse," um, which is just oh. such a, a gruesome, you know. Yeah um, expression, Uh, but those little idioms that we have become so much a part of our language that we, we forget that, you know, in other parts of the world, they mean nothing or they have a very different take on, on what we're talking about.
0: And Peter, why is it that Canadians on average are great negotiators?
2: (laughs) Well, that's a very flattering question. Very canadian way to receive the compliment well of course exactly <laughs> and the next thing i should do is apologize quickly and then apologize <laughs> for apologizing <laughs> that would be the ultimate canadian thing yes, the test, yeah. that's right sorry and i'm sorry for saying sorry uh it's interesting i wanted to ask you so great negotiators and what is it that makes you say that because i think we can be good mediators one some people might say well maybe canadians aren't the best negotiators in terms of advocating for themselves but i'm curious what what does great negotiator mean to you and then i'll, I'll try to answer your question <laughs>
0: what an insightful flip yes <laughs> i think when i say great negotiator and it's part of my not so subtle agenda to make this part of other people's definition <laughs> it's actually one that's less ego driven mm-hmm. one that's less bombastic one that's more dispassionate mm-hmm. and one that's more attuned to human impact. Mm. So, in my experience, yeah. at least in the Harvard negotiation workshop, the representation from Canada is disproportionate to other countries, mm. and I don't think that's entirely a mistake. Mm. Um, I have less experience as someone who knows not only in the U.S. but, like you said, one of those nine countries in the in the Northeast, which is its its own animal. <laughs> And even though we're identifying in a, in a basic division of Western, Eastern, or however we want to talk about things, right. North, South, Canada and U.S. are both low context. But for me, and I think for many people from the U.S. and people from Canada, when we talk to each other, we notice differences around that advocacy. And so at least to just put a finer point on the question, great yeah. negotiator means tending towards inquiry and listening, as opposed to tending towards let me sell something
2: to you right okay that's great that's a great clarification uh and i'll say one other thing and then i'll share some thoughts i one one definition i've heard that i liked in terms of what is a good negotiator is uh i think it might have come out of neil rackham's work in spin selling even I'm, I'm not sure about that or just some of his subsequent research um because even that the title is a bit of an unfortunate title, a bit of an unfortunate acronym spins on, oh, how you can trick me, you know, <laughs> which is not what he, he means Right? situation problem, et cetera. But anyway, good negotiators are people who A, regularly reach agreement, B, uh, their agreements are implemented, and C, the negotiating parties are willing to work with each other again but I'm a good negotiator because I beat you up, you know? So anyway, I, I like that definition. And I also like it because I think one of the, the de- that's quite a wise definition of good negotiator, because I might say I'm a good negotiator because I nailed you to the floor. Like I beat the living daylights out of you and you'll never speak to me again and you'll trash talk me the rest of your life. And probably our agreement will break down in a month as soon as you have a better alternative in my mind, right? So anyway, why might we do it? I think we are quite relationship oriented. I often think of Canada as being somewhere between the US and the UK culturally, like, you know, there, there is also the a strong French influence in terms of one of the early peoples who came after the First Nations, who have been here for thousands and thousands of years, right? But in terms of European peoples, um, French and English, and the English Anglo-Saxon model became the dominant model in Canada, um, and in the US, French were there as well as we know. So, so we have some of those sensibilities, those European sensibilities of, well, hang on a second here, let's just slow this down. And what about the people? And does the result matter as much as we think? And then the whole be nice, right? So, um, which can unfortunately result in something that feels somewhat passive aggressive. It's like, well, I wouldn't tell you to your face that I disagree with you because that would be, wouldn't be nice but I'll tell everyone else, you know? <laughs> and I think, well, wait a second, is that actually on balance nice? So I, I think though it does come from this notion of uh, valuing the relationship quite highly, uh, a sense of community, there's a, that, that's that European impact, you know, the US, as you know, is there, there's more of an individualistic drive, which has some incredible upsides and some, and some real downsides and the more communitarian drive here has some great upsides and some downsides but in terms of negotiating and reaching agreement and implementing agreement and being able to repeat that process I think the importance of relationship is hard to understate and especially when we disagree right and and To me what's interesting about that whole tension that we experience between the the relationship and the substance right the relationship and the outcome is i find when we get into a place where and that tension is natural and inherent lots of times when we get into a place where we're feeling that it's like i want this that other person wants that i'm not sure how to reconcile those uh and how hard am i going to push for what i want if i can't find some creative outcome that'll leave us both happy it's it's good to ask that question and I think when we've found ourselves certainly if if I think of myself when I find myself in a situation where the relationship is strained and we're not getting good outcomes and I invest and so does the other party we do the work and we find a good outcome not only have we found an answer that we both feel good about but I find the relationship is stronger after the problem than before Mm -hmm. Because we've done the work, be that a personal or or business relationship, any kind of relationship. And when I talk about this with clients, you know, people really like kind of like you guys nod and go, yeah, that makes sense. If we do the work, if we hang in there. There's a certain irony to that thinking, oh, yeah, our relationship is stronger because of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's a long answer to your question. I think it's that that relationship and, and a bit more community orientation that... Uh, that might, that might explain some of that impact.
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard it said, I think it might've been Stu Kleiman, um, every mm-hmm. negotiation is an investment in the next negotiation. Mm. And that if we've gone through something difficult and we've we've come up with a, an agreement that we both feel good about and we can implement, there's something in the relationship bank there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that says when the next negotiation comes up, particularly if it's not that, um, conflicted, you know, we might come up with some incredibly creative options that we hadn't thought about. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: yeah. And I find we're more motivated to do it too. Right? Mm-hmm. If, like if, if I, if my experience of you is, Hey, you're someone who's also looking out for my interests, you're looking out for your interests as you should. And as I would expect, and you recognize almost every relationship has some level of interdependence. And so you acknowledge it. And explicitly, even, and sometimes I'll find you saying to me, Well, thanks for offering that or suggesting that. I, that would be great for me. I'm just not sure it's great for you. And if I hear you standing up for my interests, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then that boy, my trust, my respect, my goodwill toward you goes way up. And then within that negotiation and the subsequent ones, I'm finding myself saying, Well, I want to make sure that Gwen or Max or both of you are happy too, and gee, how can I help you? Uh, so I, I feel like it has this really self-reinforcing loop in a very positive way.
0: And Peter, when you say that, the the message that I get or what's, what's popping up in my head is that negotiation is very counterintuitive thematically. Mm. Um, we don't push, we pull, we're persuasive, not by speaking, but by listening. Mm. I'm generally curious, um, as we come to the top of the hour, when you're clearly a person who identifies as as a student of life, and I think in negotiation that those of us who purport to know anything are the same people are willing to say, I also don't know anything. Um, I'm just wondering whether it's your backpacking, your approach to family, your approach to professional life, how do you, or how does negotiation factor into your approach to life?
2: Wow, that's a great question. In a big way, is the short answer. I, I literally, it's for me, well, let me think, how should I, how should I describe this? The the frame of reference, I think that we and our colleagues in our community, and certainly that I try to take to this, is that this isn't a set of skills and, you know, some way to get better business outcomes and so on. It happens to be it happens to be that as well. For me, it's much more of like a way of being, a way of living, like a uh, philosophy uh, that's, uh, that, that recognizes through experience, uh, we impact each other in our actions. And, and recognizing that is helpful and incorporating that into, in a, in a mindful and purposeful way into our interactions with people me with my wife uh, our kids our extended family siblings parents you know etc colleagues clients um leads to better outcomes and uh, for sure uh, it has made my life a lot better and it's not like like we talked about earlier it's not like i still don't screw it up of course i screw it up just ask anybody (laughs) um it's that i'll I have better odds of noticing that I screwed it up without even having to have it pointed out to me and when it is pointed out to me we cleaned up faster you know I'm not as hooked on oh yeah okay although I love being right I'm not right or we're both partially wrong we're both completely wrong or there's a 57th answer that's better than the first one (laughs) you know or um and gee I was grumpy and I apologize, that was not very nice of me. You know, all of these kinds of things. And so I, I find as time passes and, and you know, I integrate it more into just who I am, which is what I invite my clients to do as well Is say, look, think about this stuff as a, a way of approaching your interactions with other people and take the stuff that resonates with who you are and how you would like to live life and, and use that um don't try it as some cool trick <laughs> uh a parlor trick a party technique you know whatever it's then then actually you're to me you're we're not then embodying the spirit of it because my my take on getting TS, yes, i often say this to people on, on that you know fantastic book um that roger bill and bruce pulled together was they were collecting timeless wisdom mm-hmm. and putting it together in an accessible way and i remember roger fisher talking about that saying that's that's what we we're trying to do, just make this accessible to people.
1: Peter, that is a, a, a perfect ending to a really interesting conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing your timeless wisdom with us
2: mm-hmm. on this
1: podcast. We hope to see you soon on the road when we can all get back out there.
2: You bet. You bet. Yeah, my great pleasure. Thanks so much to both you, uh, Gwen, Max, for this. It's, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I look forward to staying in touch and carrying on the journey.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure. What an incredible conversation with with Peter. There's so many things that I'm taking away from Peter. And I think the biggest thing um, is the way that he talks and models what we do as a way of being and a way of thinking first, as opposed to a way of behaving, because our behaviors don't come from a void they come from the way that we think and comport ourselves. And so that curiosity and humility, and again, I, I feel like we have this important theme of um, shattering the illusion of the perfect practitioner because it doesn't exist um, is really important. And I, I'm, and anyone that works with Peter, I think is, is really grateful and, and humbled to be around a really impressive person who um, speaks the way that he does.
1: Yeah. I was really struck by the fact that in the banking example, Traditionally, that would be an absolutely adversarial relationship. And realizing that uh, he could approach that relationship differently and instead of saying, we have a problem and you're the problem, you know, we have a joint problem that we want to solve together. I also just love Peter's international reach and we don't always talk about intercultural and cultural differences in the negotiation world. We have a model, it was created in the United States. It is universal in so many ways. And I think there's lots of really interesting layers of how different cultures would use all of the different elements. So I, I really thank Peter for unbundling that for us.
0: And, and Gwen, based on what you're saying too, I, I just think something that I'm struck by with people that are working this internationally is, is less they necessarily It's less their knowledge of the culture they're going into and more their framing of how they're entering, saying things like, I want to do this in a way that's polite and I don't know how to do that. Can you help me? That idea of walking in as a guest instead of being a person who knows, which I think, especially in corporate spaces, but also government, it's very difficult and counterintuitive to say the way that I'm going to show my knowledge and ability is to be honest about my lack of it and to ask for your help.
1: Yeah. And, and thus creating a different relationship than I'm the expert and you're going to do it my way.
0: And more effective too, if you do it that way, right?
1: <laughs> we hope, we hope, we believe, we hope. and it, it, it's been proven many, many times. Uh, speaking of which, I think in our in our next episode, we are going to see how relationship building and trust helped in a, in a life or death situation. We're going to talk to uh, Melissa Fortunato, uh, an FBI crisis negotiator, about how she used these principles in an actual hostage negotiation.
0: Guess what, friend? You've just listened to Trainer Talk, a podcast where negotiation trainers talk shop. You can listen to this podcast on every podcast platform. If you have comments or questions, you can reach out to Gwen at G-W-E-N-K-A at AOL.com or to me at maxwell at maxnegotiating.com. If you want to support this podcast, you can spread the word by sharing it on LinkedIn, and most importantly, by tuning in. Thank you so much for joining us, and happy negotiating.